Ohio Governor Mike DeWine finally took some concrete steps to battle the surge of the coronavirus. Is it enough and will he do more? It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Chris Ronowski, and Jane Cahoon. Happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. <laughs> that almost sounds like it's Friday. Let's begin. we got a lot to talk about. What is Mike DeWine's new strategy for battling the coronavirus? Jane Cahoon, it was interesting that he took aim at the very things we discussed yesterday on the podcast based on the recent nature study that found that the vectors for the virus appear to be restaurants, bars, and health clubs. What's What's a little bit surprising is he's doing that without having any data, which I want to talk about in a minute. But first, let's talk about what he announced in his strategy last night. Yes, Chris, he's always listening to you on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm taking a lot night. of shots this week. <laughs> <laughs> I can never resist. Anyway, uh, on Wednesday night during this special broadcast uh, address that he made to to Ohioans, he did get a little tougher than we expected. He revised his statewide mask order to give it a little more teeth. He's he's forming a new retail compliance unit with uh, overseen by the Bureau of Workers Comp, and these agents are going to cite be- businesses that don't comply. A first violation it would come with a warning, and a second violation, you know, they would have to close for up to twenty four hours. Stores are going to have to post signs at at all the public entrances, you know, about the mask mandate. And they are going to have to make sure that both employees and customers are complying with this. And then, as you said, he had a rather scary warning for bars, restaurants, and gyms. He said, if these trends don't improve by one week from today, he's, he's going to shut them down. Now, we don't know exactly what metrics he's going to be looking at to make this determination, but, but that was his warning. He said he's well aware of the burden this is going to place on the employees and the owners of these businesses, but these are places where it's difficult or impossible to maintain mask wearing, you know, because people are drinking and eating and, you know, he thinks that's the chief way of slowing down the virus. So uh, the other thing he did was he put some new rules on social gatherings that he, you know, he's been talking about like weddings and and gatherings of people after funerals. So he's going to put out a new public health order in the next few days requiring everybody to be seated and masked at these events unless they're actively eating or drinking. And it's also going to prohibit dancing and games So, you know, and they also said if we can't get this under control, the colleges might have to, when they come back for the January semester, that they they might have to stay virtual. So, I mean, my my feeling about this was was DeWine was stern, but he really tried to speak with a, a lot of compassion about his fellow Ohioans who have been struck down by this virus and to kind of appeal to people's sense of decency and desire to make sacrifices to help their yeah, fellow yeah, and, blah 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 that's what he's been doing for months <laughs> look there, there's something serious here that he yeah. did not there's mm-hmm. a lot to sort through here we're probably gonna have to break this into a couple of conversations but but if you'll remember back in the beginning he tried to put in a mask order that businesses would have to enforce and he pulled back on it because right. 
the businesses said, we're not your police. You're putting us into the position of police. So he didn't do it. Yesterday, he did it. That's that's a that's a yeah. big deal. I mean, he is saying to the stores, if we go in and you're not doing this, you get a warning the first time. The second time, we're shutting you down for 24 hours. That does put the onus on the stores. Now, there were a lot of people back then that said, that's ridiculous. Of course, you should put the onus on the stores. They're the ones that can enforce it. But that's a big step for him. Look, it's I don't think it's a surprise that restaurants and bars are the targets. They're the targets across the country. They're targets in other states. I am still a little surprised that he's not doing anything to find out if that's true. There was a tavern owner from Cleveland on Facebook uh, right away saying, where's the data that says this? You know, I have put in UV light in my HVAC system. I enforce all the rules. It's not spreading in my place and you're going to shut me down. That's not fair. Show me why you think that's right. And with the thousands of people that have it now, you would think they could start doing a quick survey, a 10 question survey. What restaurants have you been to? What, you know, what, what have you had a family gathering? Have you been to a store and start to try and identify, are there specific restaurants that are, that are, that are worse than others? Are there stores that are worse than others without that data? What do you do? The nature thing was based on where cell phones were congregating, but, but we, we really don't have any idea in Ohio. Well, you know, Chris, you've repeatedly identified that that flaw in this whole system, and it and it does remain. I think, and it, it was interesting that that he is getting tough on the on the businesses because I think we've thought all along that the businesses really have his ear, and he's really you know reluctant to shut anything down. But I think maybe who has his ear right now are the hospitals who are saying hey, our employees are getting sick. I mean, just imagine if we have all these people in the hospital and no one to care for them. I mean, these numbers are out of control. Well, the other thing, if you'll recall, when we had him on our special episode of this podcast, we asked him how he how he originally educated himself. And he talked about reading a good bit about the 1918 pandemic. This is proceeding almost identically to that. The only thing that's missing as yet is the explosion of deaths. But in 1918, you had the initial spring surge. It went away in the summer and then it exploded into the country in uh, the winter. And he knows that we're not going to have the vaccine until springtime. We have to get through this winter and it's and we're already in really bad shape. The numbers are just completely out of control. He knows Thanksgiving is coming and that there'll be people that don't do the right thing there. So so it's so he's he put put his foot down. I mean, it was pretty emphatic how he said we've got to to deal with this. We've got to get through this winter together. I was interested in his demeanor. He always does those things that annoy journalists. We're all sitting there saying, get to the juice. What's the juice? <laughs> and he tells his little anecdotes about so-and-so in the hospital. But 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 I also think, he, you know, he's trying to be the guide. And so he suspects people need that. That you know, He smiled and he he tried to have a gentle tone while still saying, look, I've got to put these rules in. It was a different version of Mike DeWine than we've seen in the briefings. What did you think of that? Well, I really liked the one thing that he said, which was, my fellow Ohioans, few times in our lives will we, will we ever be able to do something or refrain from doing something that will or can save a life. And this is one of those 
rare times. I thought that was a really effective um, thing to say. What Kurt Swarnowski, Laura Johnston, what was your take? I I was surprised actually about the action that he took because I think we were ready for another buck up Ohio, wear your mask kind of, you know, disappointed dad speech. And this had some teeth in it. It still doesn't have a lot of detail, like how he's going to measure, you know, whether we're getting cases under control or not. It seems like a week. I mean, just looking at the lag time, that's not going, we're not going to be able to get it under control in a week. So I don't know, you know, that's the the stick part of it, what the, you know, requirements are for that. But um, I think obviously people took it seriously. And this is only, I think, the second time he's done these special, you know, addresses in the evening. So it, it does make people stand up and take notice when he's doing it at a special time and talking directly to the camera. No, Chris Ranowski, what was your take on what Governor Mike DeWine had to say in his address to the state on the coronavirus? I just like I don't know if it feels like it's it's you know, this sounds really gloomy, but, you know, I mean, are we are we past the point where something like this is going to be effective? I mean, really, what it felt like he was doing was really giving everybody like one more bite at the apple before he just shuts everything down, because, I, you know, I, I think he he doesn't want to be seen as is not as you know, being the sort of overreacting governor and he wants, I think he wants to give everybody the the benefit of the doubt and the ability to do the right thing, but he's going to, he's probably going to end up doing what I, I think he, he probably should have done this a long time ago. And that's, you know, I mean, again, the benefit of hindsight is terrific, but you know, in, instead of, instead of bailing out businesses, shutting them down, we're, we're sort of letting them become, transmission hotspots and they're going to they're going to probably end up closing down later anyway. And so it's 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 becoming sort of clear that I think appealing to people's uh, sense of decency has, you know, I think most people are decent and I think most people are are trying very hard, but it requires a significant percentage of people who aren't. And and maybe it's not nefarious, you know, maybe they're not all anti-mask people and and people who have an ideological reason for not taking this seriously. But, you know, I mean, you got to think about it. Think of the th- think about the things we didn't do. We didn't shut down churches. We didn't shut down a lot of things that, that are now being sort of seen as, as places that are, are really bad for this. And, and it's, it's a hard reality and I don't envy the position that he's in. It's tough. And really there's no winning, you know, you're going to make everybody angry, but at the end of the day, you know, you have a responsibility to keep people safe and that's going to require making unpopular decisions. And that's, well, you know, that's and that's leadership. That's well, I mean, that's what we talked did. about that yesterday. I mean, that's that's kind of what he did. I mean, I you know what I refer to as the blah, blah, blah part. You've more courteously described as him appealing to people's better angels. I and mean, he's been appealing well, it's, it's that to better angels. Thing where he's like, let me tell you about Joe Sixpack. <laughs> he lives down. He did that twice in this speech, by the way. Yeah, I know. I know. OK. What is the reaction of restaurants and bars to the news that Governor Mike DeWine might shut them down in a week because of the spread of the coronavirus? Lord Johnson, we talked to a bunch of them uh, last night quickly to find out what their reaction was. They're they're very displeased, obviously. Yeah, they are. And their viewpoint is I'm doing everything he told me to do. I spaced my tables out six feet. I improved my heating and ventilation systems. My servers are wearing masks. We, we're closing down at 10 o'clock. I'm doing everything right. You keep going up and saying that things are spreading at at weddings and funerals and 
impromptu gatherings, why are you shutting me down? Um, they talked about the fact that they've really put a lot of work into keeping things clean, especially in their kitchen. And that if people end up going to, a, you know, aunt and uncle so-and-so's house, they're not going to have all of those same guardrails in place. So people are still going to get sick. And you, you, I mean, you have to respect that they are coming from, this is their livelihood. They've done everything they're supposed to be doing. Um, a lot of them have really invested in outdoor seating and expanded their patios, added heaters, put in those bubbles, you know, um, greenhouses kind of things where people can sit safely. And they feel like they're, they're just getting blamed for everything. Well, but, We've talked about this, and Chris pointed it out earlier in the week. When you get 75 people into an indoor space with their masks off because they're eating and drinking, the physics of the virus prevail. And even if you're doing everything right, there's still a good chance if somebody has it and they're breathing and talking that they're spreading it. And so the restaurants, just by the nature of their business, could be vectors that have to be closed down to protect the population from getting sick, right? I mean, yes, you have every point there. I just think from their perspective that they are not the only places they, they have, you know, they're not the only places that this is spreading. Obviously, the mask is the big problem. What, what, I, think, what I think is weird is that, you know, when you hear these restaurant owners talk about their concerns about what's happening is that I feel like their, their anger and, 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 and fear is, is directed. It's kind of misdirected because it's saying, don't shut me down. And, and like I said, in the, the last segment, what they should be mad about is that they weren't basically paid to shut down so we could get this under control because it, it, I, I understand the frustration because they're investing a lot of money trying to do the right thing. And I believe a lot of them are doing the right thing. They're trying, but you know, it's gotta be expensive, you know, and we, we talk about all this money these businesses got, well, from the government, well, it doesn't matter, you know, if, if they have to spend, you know, any percentage of that on trying to retrofit their restaurant to remain open during this plague, like it, it just, it, it, like we're taking the wrong track of this because, you know, we, we've, We've turned the idea of the government, you know, do, you know, helping businesses by paying them to basically stay shut. We've turned that into a bad notion because it's quote unquote socialism. And so, you know, co companies shouldn't be ashamed to ask the government to say, hey, we should probably shut down because it's not for the benefit of public health. Please help us make it through this. We'll, we'll take a couple of months. We'll, we'll try to get this under control. I mean, you know, that's what. You know, when you look at places like New Zealand that really managed to get a handle on this in a in a meaningful way, they did that. And we were just perfectly incapable of, of accepting that that might be the thing we need to do. And, I, and look, if I were a business owner faced with losing my business because the government and the scientists didn't figure out how it was spreading, didn't do the data work that was needed, I'd just be so frustrated because that is the whole purpose of having health departments. And what that we've talked about this before, what this pandemic has proven is that our health departments are almost useless. They're not doing much at all to stop the spread of this. They get up and trot out some numbers, but they're not figuring out why it's spreading and coming up with ways to stop it from spreading. And, and, and it's just a gigantic bureaucracy that seems to exist to employ people to do things that aren't very helpful. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
I got to get my flag out for this one. With coronavirus cases skyrocketing in Ohio, we had nearly 6,000 Wednesday. Should we be changing our mask habits and wearing the N95 masks that doctors and nurses use? Lord Johnson, we did a story on this yesterday that I actually think what we're telling people is bogus. So lay it out for us. (laughs) (laughs) Again, um, so the experts are saying you do not need an N95 mask in part because they have to be professionally fitted by a medical expert in order to protect you and because they're uncomfortable and hard to breathe through. Okay. So I've been using N95 masks as a woodworker for decades and they're not adjustable. That's just dumb. They're, they're, they're one, one thing. They have elastic bands on them to, to talk about it's adjustable or it, that you make adjustments like it's some ventilator with cartridges. It's just dumb. That, 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 that's one of those statements, you know, you go back to the beginning of the pandemic and they said, oh, no, you don't need a mask. And it really, they all admit now they lied because they wanted doctors and nurses to have access to those masks. So they weren't truthful with people. This line about, oh, you shouldn't use them because you, you have to adjust them. I just don't. That's just not that's not true. If you ever used one, there's nothing to adjust. You put it on your face, you put the elastics around and you breathe through them. If they want to say that you don't need them yet, that other lesser masks will do the job to keep you from getting the coronavirus, fine. But come on. I mean, what, what, that, does, does anybody think that begins to pass the sniff test? I mean, no. To me, I've seen people wear them. I've never worn an N95, but they don't look that difficult. You're right. It's like a thing that goes around your head. Um, and it kind of looks, you know, it looks kind of cardboardish. I, I, I haven't worn one, but, you know, if we keep getting to the point where this keeps getting worse and worse and people don't feel protected, people aren't going to, I mean, People are going to go buy them themselves. Well, the reason I ask the question, the reason we wanted to do the story is because it's spreading now so, so fast and, and in such high numbers. And no one knows why that, that this, you speculate that, well, maybe we need more effective masks. Maybe the cloth mask isn't enough in, in the current environment because this thing is, seems to be everywhere. So that was the, the question. That was the premise that the story is based on. And I, I just feel like, you know, we're being lied to again that, that, that no, 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 doctors and nurses need them. So, so yeah, you don't want them. They're, they're not comfortable and, and you need to adjust them. They're not that uncomfortable. I mean, I've worn a lot of different masks and they're no less or more comfortable than any other mask. And again, you can't adjust them. <laughs> so, I mean, can, can I ask a question really quick? Yeah. Because um, my girlfriend works in a hospital and she was saying that in order to be re- like truly effective, they have to be fitted. Is that do you do you know that to be true? There's nothing to fit, Chris. It's not like there's like moving parts. I mean, any, with any mask, you're supposed to make sure the edges of the mask seal to your face, whether mm-hmm. it's a cloth mask or a surgical mask or any of the other the Under Armour masks, whatever it is. This is no different. But it's yeah, you're supposed to make sure that the mask touches all around your face, but you don't need a professional person. to well, do that. And I, I only say that because she actually had to go into work to get measured and fit, like legitimately fitted for her mask. So, so, you know, I, I, to say that you don't need one, I, I some hospitals are doing that. So the, the hospitals are probably mm-hmm. trying to make sure that their employees are safe. Right. Mm-hmm. So they're they're You know, we, we have ergonomics training at, at our shop because people sit in front of computers all day and they want to make sure they don't get repetitive 
injuries, right? Because mm-hmm. that's that's what companies do to keep you safe. But long before the pandemic began, N95 masks were readily available to anybody who worked in environments where they were trying to protect their airstream. And they work. You know, it's just, I, I still don't, I wish we understood why it was spreading. So then we would know whether we need more efficient masks. I feel like we just don't have that information. And I don't get the feeling anybody's trying to. We're working on another story that I think is going to lay out the efficiency level of all the different kinds of masks, right? That actually posted last night. So I can talk a little bit about that if you want. But you you talked about the fit being really important. And Emily Bamforth looked at a lot of studies about this. And it comes down to um, ties and pleating and fabric um, layers. So you the way that a cloth mask is structured, you can sometimes have gaps between the cheeks and the mask. We've all seen people, there's like a big spot between their nose. It's not covered. You want all of that covered. And um, a metal piece on your nose can really help adjust the fit because the air is going to go out the easiest way wherever it isn't blocked. Um, And ties apparently create a better seal than elastic around your ears, especially when you're moving around, though adjustable elastics uh, can be better. And I'm seeing a lot of even cheaper masks at Old Navy coming with those now. So um, basically, you just want it to fit really well and you want multiple layers. And if they can be made of different material that stops that stops different parts of the um, airflow, basically, and the particles, that would be even better. Yeah, the N95 masks I've used for woodworking had two different pieces of elastic, and they didn't go around your ear. One would go across the back of the top of your head. One would go around your neck. It was, you're right, it's all to pull it tight, which which any mask should do. So, all right, well, I'm glad that story posted yesterday. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Then someone in the Cleveland Police Department finally get disciplined in the fatal shooting of Tamir Rice nearly six years ago. Chris Warnowski, this has been interminable waiting for resolution of this case. Yeah. My first reaction when I, when Adam Freese told me about this story was this is still going on. And, uh, but yeah, so, uh, Cleveland safety director, Carrie Howard, uh, reversed a decision that was made by police chief Cal- Calvin Williams, who imposed no discipline on a police supervisor who oversaw the detaining of Tamir Rice's sister in the moments after police officer shot the 12 year old boy, the civilian police review uh, board uh, announced their decision uh, Tuesday during the board's monthly meeting, nearly six years after Tamir was killed. Carrie Howard, the public safety director suspended Sergeant Janelle Rutherford for two days without pay and this was after uh, the decision was appealed to the, the civilian review board. Um, I, in this case, I, I think the uh, the punishment is is sort of strange because she was the I think the lowest ranking supervisor at the scene, and all of the other supervisors who were there have all had all retired. They all just decided to leave the police department. So the board had recommended a suspension between six and ten days. Um, but two is, is where the public safety director sort of landed on it. Um, I, if, if you remember, this was, this was a pretty, it, it was interesting because I remember finding out about this sort of in two waves because when they originally released the video of Tamir being shot, they kind of cut out a lot of the before and after. And, and so, but I remember seeing this and sort of being, pretty appalled by the fact that a a police officer basically tackled this girl 
uh, who was, I think, 14 at the time that this happened after she just witnessed her brother being killed. And then they cuffed her and put her in a police car, basically like feet from her, her little brother's dead body. And, and so, I mean, it was a pretty, you know, I mean, it was a pretty rough situation all around, but that was, you know, that sort of added fuel to kind of the, the outrage of everything. And, and if people recall, I mean, the sister received a, a pretty significant settlement from the city as a result of what happened to her at this, at the scene. So, you know, I, you know, at least from a civil perspective, there is at least, you know, you know, what we do in a lot of these cases, which is we sign a dollar amount to, you know, grief and, you know, $640,000 out of a $6 million settlement is, is, it says a lot about what happened. All right. So, but it's almost six years later. Yeah. And what is the point of a punishment? I mean, I guess that they say all along, hey, this will go its course and we will get to this eventually. And so they did. But it, it points out a serious flaw in the system where it takes six years well but even on top of that it's not even this isn't even the final step of it you know i mean the union is is likely going to appeal this and it will go before an arbitrator and as we have written about extensively in the past the city has not done a you know a great job of of arguing and successfully arguing that arbitration or that uh suspension should and firing should stick you know they've they've had to pay a they've lot of done, back pay and bring people back to work because of that. They've uh, done better though. Right. Like, I mean, yeah, they've, they've, like, improved. they've improved on this. Over I, I just, I can't, I can't imagine any other process that would take this. It's just six years to, to get to a decision that you screwed up and you need to, to lose a couple of days pay for it. Six well, years. And, and going back to the, you know, when we think about what were some of the biggest issues that arose when the justice department was looking at the police department very closely, you know, this, the disciplinary process was where it's kind of an uninteresting part of the whole consent decree thing to the degree that, you know, it's, it's not as like interesting as, Oh, everybody has to get use of force trained. No, this is like the thing in the background that was actually really meaningful that is, it continues to be kind of a problem, which is the very kind of complicated, I mean, it's, it's a really sort of bureaucratic process in, in how, how they review and discipline officers. And there have been issues with the civilian review board. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a huge problem still. And I think the, the, the person that is overseeing the reform effort, uh, the, the consent decree head, um, you know, they, 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 they have both the two that we've had have both been very critical of this process. It's, and they, yeah, they claim well, that it's improving, but it's, man, I mean, six years six to, years. to, to, to reach a conclusion yeah. is a lot. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. With the coronavirus skyrocketing, the HB6 scandal continuing in Ohio politics in flux, why are Ohio lawmakers focused on a new law to let people train owls for hunting? And how does that even work? Dan Cahoon, this, you know, I was off yesterday. Well, not really, but, but trying to be off. When that story popped up, I, I thought, what? <laughs> Training owls like falcons? What are they doing? So, Chris, you're really in my wheelhouse now. Hunting with owls, my, my expertise here, uh, something I know absolutely nothing about. But but Jeremy Pelzer did help educate me a little bit with his story. I, I don't know that lawmakers are necessarily focused on this, but one of them has, has introduced a bill. Senator Frank Hoagland from Jefferson County, he introduced a bill sought by a constituent of his, Mick Brown of Martins Ferry, who happens to be the president of the Ohio Falconry Association. 
So this bill would allow falconers to use owls to hunt for small game like squirrels and rabbits. And there are only a hundred or so Ohioans who have a state issued falconry permit who, who would be able to do this. And to get one of those licenses, you, you have to pass a written test and, and complete a two-year apprenticeship. So we're not talking about a, a lot of people here, but so, so, so just so for my own edification. So if I train a falcon to hunt, I go out, he goes and finds me a squirrel, brings it back, and then I can eat the squirrel. That's the way that works. <laughs> I don't want to get into that, Chris. It's <laughs> gross. And now we're going to do it with owls because they can hunt at night. It's just well, one of the strangest I, I, stories I've seen in weeks. Yes, it is. I thought it was funny, too, because Jeremy talked to the executive director of the International Owl Center in Minnesota, who said that owls are really kind of like cats when it comes to training them. You know, they'll do it if they want to do it. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know, I yeah, this is a thing. OK, well, the, the, when, <laughs> when it comes back into the slam duck session, they have school funding, the, the fixing a three decade old unconstitutional school funding formula and training owls to hunt for your dinner for squirrels. Very interesting. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Wow, we we didn't get to talk about a lot of topics today, but the coronavirus obviously is a big topic that is worth spending time on. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up a week of news. <laughs>